The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And we are having a lot of fun with technology again. Um, This week, uh, we're going to talk about a problem that has been confronting patent lawyers of recent times. And it's going to be a bigger and bigger problem going forward. How do you patent ideas and concepts that have been developed by artificial intelligence programs? Can you patent it directly to the program that developed the idea, or do you have to have it patented by the person who developed the AI program? This is an ethical dilemma that patent lawyers are trying to deal with. This week, we're going to feature uh, two individuals, and actually three individuals, who started the first unicorn company in Ukraine. It's called Grammarly. And a unicorn company is a company that's worth more than one more than one billion dollars, and prior to going public, still being privately held. And these guys put together a company that's now worth ten billion dollars. It's an interesting story, especially coming out of Ukraine. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Doug. In Richmond, dear Tech Talk, I've got an Acer a Tech desktop computer with, with the Windows 10 on it. Everything's working fine, but when I came back from lunch, my web browser was in the full screen mode, totally maximized. I thought it was odd because it was normal when I left it. I tried the little square icon in the upper right-hand corner to take the browser out of full screen mode. I couldn't click it. None of my apps opened. And they were all showing up. None of my apps were showing up on the taskbar. The taskbar just disappeared. Do you have any idea what's going on and what I need to do to fix it? My boss and I are at a lunch, Doug in Richmond. Uh, well, though, loss, this happened to me I'm, once when yeah. I. You know, that that did it because that that sounds terrifying, right? You have no yeah, idea. Yeah, this, this happened to me once. I got a, um, uh, when I got my new uh, laptop, it had a touch screen. And it turns out that Windows 10 has a laptop, has a um, has basically a, uh, a tablet mode. And so it flips over to the tablet mode and then the keyboard doesn't work, you gotta touch the tablet. And one, one time I, I flipped it into the tablet mode not knowing what I was doing and it took me a while to figure it out. I had the same problem Doug's got. Well, I think Doug, you are in the tablet mode and you can very easily do that and you can switch back to the desktop mode very easily. What you wanna do, is you want to right-click there on the Start button, 
there. So the start button is still there even in the tablet mode. And then click on settings. And then when you're in the settings mode, click on system. And then on the left-hand pane, you'll see something called tablet. Okay, and then you can click on tablet and you'll see, uh, and then you click on change additional settings in the tablet mode. And then there will be something called tablet mode and you can toggle it to off. It's gonna be on there. So you toggle it to off, that's it. And your PC will come back to its regular mode. This actually freaked me out when it happened to me the first time. I can imagine you're clicking around and nothing's happening. Nothing's but happening, and then the, the, all the apps on the, ta the, on the taskbar go away, and the apps show up just you know, on the screen like, like you'd have on a tablet. Doc, why you know, would the desktop even have that option? Yeah, so, yeah, so you, it, it, in the tablet mode, then your apps show up, right in the middle of the screen, just like it would be on a tablet. Uh -huh. so you can click on them. It's, it's, it actually is convenient if you're using the, the touchpad. You know, I've, I thought I would like, uh, I'd like to having a touch screen with my laptop. I can tell you I never touch the screen. I, 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 I just don't really use it that much. It was one of these things, my, my laptop, I can fold it down and I can, I can use it like a tablet if I want, but the fact is I never use that option. I just liked having it, but I've never used it. It's not very good for, for productivity, actually. And if I'm going to surf the web and just look around, I tend to use my cell phone instead of my laptop anyway. We got an email from Lauren in Manhattan. Dear Doc and Andrew, I'm in the process of shopping for a new laptop because my old one is stolen. And every time I type the word laptop into Amazon search box, Usually a few Chromebooks come up. Now, I remember seeing commercials on TV that said Chrome, Chromebooks really aren't real laptops. Is that true? But they come up in the search for laptop. What's going on, Lauren in Manhattan? Well, Chromebooks are included in your search results, Lauren, because they technically are laptops. Now, the commercials that you saw were produced by Microsoft, and they wanted to convince you that a Chromebook, which basically does, which actually wants to execute uh, cloud-based applications, uh, is not a real laptop that could actually run those applications natively right there without being connected to the internet. And so they're trying to convince you not to get a Chromebook. Now, now it is true, the Chromebook, it, it doesn't do everything your laptop can do. Uh, but but they are indeed laptops. You see, the Chromebook runs Google's Chrome operating system instead of Microsoft Windows. Now, uh, if you've got a Windows machine or a Macintosh or a Linux machine, uh, you actually are running all the applications right on your laptop itself. If you're working with a Chromebook and say you, you, you're, you're using uh, Google Docs, uh, when you actually are doing processing with Google Docs, all the processing is done on the cloud, on the Google servers, and your local laptop's not doing any of the processing. It basically just becomes what they call a thin client, where you are accessing web applications, processing them on the web, and you can see the results displayed on your screen. Now, for most people, the Chromebook is just fine because... You basically, they basically use it just for surfing the web. And, uh, and so if you're looking for a, uh, a laptop that's strictly for internet use, 
Chromebook is really a good option because they're a lot cheaper. You don't have to have all that processing power. You don't need big, powerful CPUs locally just to surf the web and execute programs on the cloud. But does that mean you literally cannot store any documents or anything like that, files, on your actual Chromebook? Because you would always have to have access to the internet uh, in order to, to, to... Yeah, to do anything useful, you've got to have anything, you've got to be able to access the internet, yeah. Now, the, now, if you look at Chromebooks, they do have, they do have some local storage. So you can store some documents locally, but the Chromebooks are really not really meant to have big hard drives where you store everything locally. Like if you use Google Docs, you tend to, you know, you 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 uh, save all your docs on, on documents on the um, on the cloud. Yeah, it's really meant to be an internet-enabled de de device. Look, it's it's built on the Chrome browser, <laughs> so basically the browser is the operating system. <laughs> so it's uh, so basically you've got an operating system built into a Chrome browser and so you really it's really meant to be used with the browser. It's, it's a completely different function. Now, they they built Chromebooks. They were they were selling them to schools so kids would use Chromebooks. So teachers would have all sorts of web-based applications that the kids could use. The teachers liked it because they could configure all the Chromebooks to be exactly what they want. They could completely control exactly what the applications looked like. So uh, Chromebooks are a good, a good laptop for many people who just who just need it, who just need internet access. Doc, doesn't They're, that make them a lot more secure too? If you think about it, there's not really anything you can infect. You can't right. because you're not keeping it. You're only accessing whatever's on the web. You're not really holding anything that can get corrupted or hurt by malware or whatever. That's right. Now, uh, now one of my grandkids, he he, uh, you know, so they wanted to, they wanted to have all the kids, all the, my grandkids, they, the school wanted them all to get Chromebooks, but he wants to be a composer. So he wanted to get music that he wanted to get applications that would allow him to compose on his laptop. It turned out that the only applications that would allow you to compose on your laptop had to be stored natively. So he could not get a Chromebook and actually and actually execute that program locally. So he ended up getting a more expensive laptop. And then when he would want to do his schoolwork, he would open up the Chrome browser and he would access the, uh, the web applications through the Chrome browser. But he had to get a more, he has the most expensive laptop in the family because he needed to run a native, a native application on his laptop. So you, you have to know what you're going to do with it. Now, I don't have a Chromebook because I run a lot of stuff natively, but um, I'll tell you, for most people, the Chromebook is just fine, and it's a lot cheaper. We got an email from Barbie in Manhattan. Dear Doc and Andrew, can you explain what it means to jailbreak an iPhone? I read something about it the other day, and it went right over my head. Thanks, Barbie in Manhattan. Well, um, Barbie, Apple limits the type of apps that you can install on the iPhone or iPad. In order to prevent you from installing a malicious app, it's going to steal all your data. They also lock down some of the settings so that you can't um, you can't corrupt your your, uh, your your iPhone. 
and they blocked user access to some features which are underlying the operating system to present, prevent the user from changing things that could render the device vulnerable to hackers. You see, the fact is Apple just doesn't trust you. And they think if you got access to the guts of the iPhone, you're going to mess it up. So they try to block that from you. Now, they also, any apps that are installed on the Apple device, they run them through rigorous testing uh, for uh, malicious intent or malware. And they only want applications on your iPhone that have passed the Apple scrutiny so that you're only putting secure apps on your phone. Now, a lot of people don't like this. They don't like the fact that Apple has limited what they can do to their iPhone, especially some techies. So, uh, and so you can remove those limitations. Oh, by the way, so people who have their iPhones with all these restrictions on it, they feel like they feel like their phone has been placed in jail. You can't do anything with it. So there are methods to remove all those limitations that Apple's placed on the iPhone. So you can install any app you want. You can modify the operating system. And so you're, if, you, if you remove those limitations, it's like you're removing your iPhone from jail. So it's called a jailbreak. Now, so the process for removing those limitations is known as jailbreaking the device. And there are a number of ways to do that. Now, once you jailbreak the device, you can install any app you want. And, and chances are you're going to install an app that's not approved by Apple, which means it hasn't been vetted by Apple for lack of malware. Uh, and installing unauthorized apps is the biggest way that people get their iPhone infected with malware. Uh, so I actually think the, uh, in addition, once you've removed all the limitations, you could do something to your operating system that might make it uh, even vulnerable to hackers in, in more ways than just the app itself. And I think it's clear that Apple at that point, too, says, you know, there are no warranties. There, you, you avoided every kind of uh, backup that we have offered to you because you, you've, you've you, done that at yeah, all. And so yeah. it, if you trace down people that jailbreak their devices, ultimately they end up regretting it. Mm -hmm. And more likely than not. So my advice is uh, don't uh, don't don't jailbreak your iPhone. Don't learn leave, how to do well this well enough alone. Yeah. And use the app, use the safeguards. Now, you can do the same thing for Android's uh, devices. Now, if in the case of Android device, they don't call it jailbreaking. They call it rooting because Android is built on top of a Linux kernel. And if you control the root subdirectory, of the operating system, you've rooted the device. So jail, and so once you control the root op, the root subdirectory of the uh, of the kernel, you can do anything you want to the device. And so they call it rooting. And so there's a similar process to root devices. And then you can install devices that also haven't been vetted by Google. I'm also recommending you don't do that to your Android device. We got an email from Jessica in Alexandria. Dear Tech Duck, I got a question about charging my phone. Now, I, now I, I, I lead walking tours to the streets of my historic hometown. I've got a few minutes here and there where I can charge in the phone for a quick charge uh, because, you know, I'm constantly, uh, you know, running out of charge during the day. Someone told me my phone will charge faster if I turn it off before I plug it in. Is that true, Jessica in Alexandria? Well, Jessica, 
I mean, your iPhone's got a lot of sophisticated electronics, CPU, memory chips, multiple send and receive radios. All those devices consume power. So if you turn off your phone while you're charging it, it will it will actually charge up a little bit faster. That is true. And and you might pick up a few minutes of uh, of running time just by turning it off during the, the times that you charge it. Now, I, I've got another solution for you. I, I think you should actually get yourself an inexpensive portable external battery charger and just carry it around with you. Put it in your purse or your bag. Now, I've had one for the longest time. I've got Landlock Portable Charger Power Bank. Now, it's got 28, 25, thousand milliamp hour capacity that capacity is the maximum capacity that you can carry on an airplane without it being flagged by uh, homeland security by the way that maximum capacity is also the max capacity of the batteries on your laptop they designed them to to be allowed to be carried on an airplane and 25,000 milliamp hours is the max that uh, DHS will allow on an airplane. So I've got this one unit. It's only 12 ounces. It's got two USB charging ports. And it's only $19.95 on Amazon right now. And I'll tell you, you, you can charge your iPhone uh, with, that, with that battery seven or eight times before it goes down. I'm telling you, it is uh, all you'd have to do. It's got two USB charging ports. Just let your iPhone plug into that during the day, then at night charge the battery, and you're going to be good to go. I can tell you, whenever I travel on an airplane, I take this I take this battery with me because now you only got all this content, which you have to watch with your cell phone or your, or your, or your iPad or your laptop. And some of the airplanes don't have charging ports on them or don't have plugs on them. And if you don't have a battery, it's hard to watch a movie for the entire time of the flight. So I always carry that battery with me. And as soon as you can bring up the movie, I do. And I just plug it into my battery. We got an email from Tom in Whitestone. Dear a Tech Talk, uh, the big box stores are constantly trying to sell me gold-plated connectors for my systems. Now, they're expensive, and I'm not really sure of their value. They're really pushing them. Now, the gold-plated connectors on stereo jacks, HDMI cables, Ethernet connectors serve any purpose? Uh, or can you save money and just, uh, you know, get something cheaper on your next cable purchase? Tom in Whitestone, Virginia. Well, Tom, I used to be a big gold-plated connector guy, too, back in the day. When I was... Uh, doing all my stereo stuff. You know, I built my own Bose speakers. I had this fancy um, amplifier. I, I, I built my own amplifier. You need know, to get the kits, you build your amplifier kits. I was like really into that. And it turns out back in the day, all of the signals that were carried with those stereo systems were analog signals. And if you got an analog signal, gold actually could be could be helpful because uh, if you had some corrosion in the connections, it could change the waveform and affect the quality of your of your analog signal. Because uh, gold is always preferred as as a coating because it doesn't it it actually has a very slow rate of corrosion. Whereas copper, which is a better conductor, has a high rate of corrosion. So what you do, you use copper as the conductor, and you'd, you'd coat it with gold, and then you wouldn't get 
and you wouldn't get uh, much oxidation uh, on the gold. Now, once they went to digital signals, say like HDMI is digital, it's a digital connection. I mean, this gold almost had no impact because the digital signal is reconstructed at the other end. You don't worry about waveform uh, distortion. Uh, if it's not quite a zero or one, it just is corrected to be absolutely a zero or one. So you get lossless transmission through the cable when it's digital. So you don't really need that gold stuff anymore. So now I've sworn off gold because everything I'm using now is all digital, digital connections. Now what you want to do is you're getting an HDMI cable. You want to look at the HDMI spec. So you want, for instance, your cable to support the latest HDMI spec, which would be HDMI 2.1, which means it's got the bandwidth to support 48 gigabits per second. And it can handle that uh, without any problem. And that allows you to get an HDR 4K video up to 120 frames per second. It'll support Xbox and PlayStation, but you don't need gold. So these guys at the, at the big box stores, they make... Maybe they get a commission on those gold cables, so they're always pushing them. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Yes, indeed, we will. Now, has this ever happened to you? This may be unclear or hard to follow. Consider rephrasing. That's true. Mm, you got a prompt like that? Well, perhaps you have Grammarly. It fixes sentences and turns them into something you wish you could have written. And we'll meet the two guys who came up with this brilliant idea next. Profiles in IT coming up on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Alexei Shevchenko and Maxim Litvin. Now, Alexei and Maxim, they are two Ukrainian entrepreneurs, best known as founders of Grammarly, the first Ukrainian unicorn. Wait a minute, Doc. You tell me they have unicorns in Ukraine? Yes, they do. <laughs> well, you're right, Doc. 
It's, I think it's a song for children, but it's a song about a unicorn sung in Ukrainian. Wow. Yeah, here we go. And now. Yeah, my unicorn, my unicorn. So he's my only friend, you know. <laughs> that must have really inspired Alexi and Maxim. That yeah, well. yeah. Well, they probably grew up uh, dreaming of unicorns. Well, maybe their sisters did. I'm not sure boys always dream of unicorns as much as yeah, girls do. Yeah. Yeah. So Unicorn, of course, is, a, is, a, is yeah. any company that's yes. not gone public yet that's worth more than a billion dollars. Yeah. And these guys created it. Now, they met at the International Christian University in Ukraine in the late 1990s, and they, they got their degree there. In 2004, Alexei Shevchenko, he, uh, he moved to Toronto for his master's degree. And, uh, and, and actually, Maxim Litvin, he stayed in Kiev, actually. Uh, and they worked together on, uh, on a program called My Dropbox. What Alexei and Maxim had noticed is that students were copying, I mean, who thought? Who would have known? Students are copying term papers from the internet, and they're sort of rewriting them and trying to doctor them up and turning them in for their own assignments. So plagiarism turned out to be a huge problem there in, um, in Ukraine, and, and, I, and I suppose also in uh, Toronto. So they decided to make a program called My Dropbox that would actually detect plagiarism. Now, what was good is that the students could run the program themselves on their own term papers, and it would tell them what part of their term paper needed to be rewritten because there was too much in it that was plagiarized. Now, the company uh, actually that they started, My Dropbox, they were in Kiev as well as Toronto. They had 10 to 15 people working on the project in Kiev, and Maxim was uh, Litvin was actually working with them. And then they had five to six people in Toronto, and then Alexei Shevchenko was working with them. By 2007, they had uh, signed up 800 universities to use my Dropbox, and they had about a two, and they had about two million students using the the product. So it was really quite successful. <clears throat> But it was limited because they were limited to students. It was limited in scope. Um, you know, it would be difficult to scale this thing to be huge. Uh, so they decided to sell their initial uh, plagiarism software, My Dropbox, to Blackboard. Now, Blackboard runs a uh, learning management system. It's an online platform for the delivery of online content. And Blackboard wanted to embed <clears throat> My Dropbox technology into the Blackboard platform. So <clears throat> Blackboard bought it. Now, this was the condition. After they bought my Dropbox, uh, Maxim Litvin had to work for Blackboard for two years to help integrate their product into the Blackboard platform. Uh, in addition, uh, Alexei was forbidden from working on a competitive project for two years, he couldn't work on a competitor to my Dropbox until after two years. So these guys couldn't develop any new companies in this general area for two years. So Maxim uh, Lipkin went to work for Dropbox, uh, went to work for Blackboard, and he integrated the product into Blackboard. 
And the day after his two-year sentence was up, boom, he quit. He quit Blackboard, and he moved to Toronto. The next day, Maxim Litkin and Alexei Shevchenko started a new company. And the new company was had an expanded scope beyond just, just uh, plagiarism detection. Now, the service was initially called Sentence Works, and the idea was it would be a tool that would help people write. They, they felt that they should help students do, do writing. Just Instead of just doing plagiarism checking was sort of after the fact, they checked for plagiarism. But wouldn't it be better if you could actually have a tool that would be like a writing assistant and help students write better, better subjects. So they started Sentence Works was the name because they would help you, you know, write sentences. They quickly renamed it Grammarly, which I think is a much better name. I like Grammarly much better than Sentence Work. Now they used the profits from my Dropbox to fund their next venture, so they didn't have to get any seed money. They didn't have to get any angel investors. Uh, they just said, okay, we're going to use the money that we've earned from Blackboard to start our new company, Grammarly. Now, they already had established connections with universities, and they already knew how to work with students. So they said, okay, let's, let's start Grammarly on what we know, and we'll go after the clients who we know, and then we'll build from there. So they started working with universities and with students to sell this writing tool, and um, and they, uh, and they started expanding the base. They got people to use it so they could get some experience. They brought on a programmer, uh, Dimitro Leiter. They brought on a programmer who was Ukrainian, of course. He, they met him back at the International Christian University. And, uh, and he helped them programming this automated writing assistance. Now, it was uh, in addition to just a, it started out as a simple spell checker for uh, for, uh, you know, that, that the students could use as they were writing their term papers. And it was supposed, it was really initially targeted to help educational institutions. But, and what they could do, that allowed them to focus on paying customers because they had, they had customers and they could work on, they could improve their product and try to make it better and better and better. Now, they actually became profitable by 2011. So they got, early stage success in the EDU market because students did want to learn how to write. So they kept improving the writing tools that were built into Grammarly. And that's kind of a key element. When you're starting a new business, you've got to get feedback from your clients to make it better and better and better. And actually, by the third year, they started in 2009. By the third year of 2012, they were actually generating... $10 million a year in revenue, which is really impressive for a startup that's had no VC money. By 2013, Grammarly introduced the Microsoft Office add-in feature, which means you install it on your laptop and it's integrated right with Microsoft Office. And I tell you, that is really convenient. I, I downloaded Grammarly to my laptop. I brought up Microsoft Word and automatically it showed up there. I start writing and it's making suggestions for me right out of the bat. It's really really convenient. Now, it is a little disconcerting. I don't quite know how it got into my Microsoft Office. I just installed the app, and now it's in Office, so it seems to be everywhere on my laptop now.
It seems uh, to me everywhere where you actually write text, is that correct? Isn't yeah, it? Also in, in your email. email. Yeah, email, I write yeah. An email and it shows up there. Well, that's a little creepy, Doc, I have to say. It is a little creepy. <laughs> yeah. but, I, but, you know, I kind of like it. Uh, you know, I'll... Uh, I'm going to assess the creep, the creepiness of it uh, this week. I just installed it uh, this last week. Oh, okay. Week. Yeah. I haven't had it that long. Now, they decided now, okay, once they had kind of a product that that actually had been through beta testing, people liked it, it was helping them write better, they decided, well, let's expand to a broader market. Let's go beyond students. So they decided to expand their product for to journalists to salespeople, to consultants, to government, to technical med medical writers. So they were going to expand it to people that actually knew how to write, and, and they needed to get a tool that would help them write better. Now, that meant they had to increase the sophistication. So they started using artificial intelligence to analyze what you've written. <clears throat> and so this cloud-based typing assistant, it reviews spelling, of course. That's where they started. But then it checks on grammar checks on punctuation. Now, using AI, it checks on clarity. So if you write a sentence that is really too wordy, and they'll suggest a rewrite of the sentence. It suggests engagement. There's a certain writing style. It can be formal, informal. And so you can put down what kind of form, what kind of writing style you want, and it will use AI to make suggestions. And so... It evolved into quite something that was uh, significant. So the artificial intelligence will identify and search for appropriate replacements for an error. And it lets the, the, the writer customize their style, their tone, and their context-specific language. Like, you know, if you're a technical writer, you know, you can specify what sort of technology writing you are writing about. In 2015, they introduced the browser extensions, which were really nice. You could just you you could you could actually put it in, in a browser extension, and then uh, it would uh, it would allow you you know if you were doing say um, say Google Docs and you were writing something in the browser, it would actually work with you directly on that. And what was most significant, they introduced the freemium model. It's where you've got seven-day free trial, and then after that, you, you, you have to pay a subscription like $11.99 a month. And that freemium model really accelerated their growth because a lot of people tried it out. Uh, by 2015, their daily active users had grown to one million users. Now, what they did that was interesting then, once they went to the freemium model, instead of targeting potential customers, they switched their attention toward freemium users, and they were trying to figure out what features can we get that will get more free use plan users to actually convert to the paid plan. And so they started looking at the conversion rate of the free users, and they tried to get features that would increase that conversion rate. Uh, that really worked out very well. By early In early 2018, they had their first big security breach. Google discovered a high severity vulnerability in the extension that Grammarly had developed for a couple of major web browsers. Now, what happened was you could go in through Grammarly.com and you could then access documents on the user's website directly. 
So it was it was a really a severe breach right into the uh, data that a user would have on their laptop. Now, what was interesting, <clears throat> Google notified Grammarly of this vulnerability, and they released an update to fix this security issue within hours. Even Google said that is the most impressive response I had ever seen on a security breach. And it turned out that there was no data they, they checked out. They, they fixed it so fast that that particular security vulnerability was never actually exploited by any hackers. Uh, by 2019, Grammarly had reached 20 million active users. And by 2020, they'd reached 30 million active users. Now, they were able to sort of fuel this giant expansion by raising money. They actually did not go to venture capitalists until 2017, and they raised their first round of money. It was around $90 million in 2017. They, they got their final round of money, November 17, 2021. In all, they've round, they, they had three funding rounds, and they've raised $400 million. They raised that money to fuel the growth. They now had a viable model. They had a lot of users, but now they wanted to really blow it up, and they really needed to expand it. And in order to expand it, they needed to scale their infrastructure to support that growth. It took money to do that, so they used the funding to fuel, to, you know, to fuel the growth and to allow them to scale dramatically. Uh, now, when they get this, these investments, the investors have to decide how much is the company worth because that determines what percentage uh, of uh, equity they have for their investment. So on the investment that came in November 17th, 2021, the investors valued the company at $10 billion. And based on that valuation, they calculated what their equity share would be for the final tranche of money, which was $110 million. So now, even though this is not public, the company has been valued by investors who are really the ones who are going to value it at $10 billion. Now, here's the amazing thing is, Alexei Shevchenko and Max and Lipkin each have a 35% share of the company, which is amazing. They've managed to hold on to the lion's share of the equity, uh, even though they've raised $400 million. And they were able to do that because they didn't get any money until they were making a lot of money. So that means that their 35% stake is each worth uh, $3.5 billion. So I think, I, I think these guys ought to be pretty happy with that. Now, the, the programmer that helped them program the AI features of Grammarly, since he was brought on later on, he only has a 1% stake which you see, that's a paltry amount, 1% compared to the 35. But his 1% stake is worth $100 million, which isn't, isn't too shabby. But Doc, all of this is unrealized gains, right? I mean, in a sense, somebody will have to come along and actually be willing to pay that much for a person's share in a company. That's right. Somebody. So yeah. uh, these are unrealized gains, and they won't realize it yeah, until, they, uh, until they go public. Or until somebody, or until until they sell some of their shares. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So this is this is all like paper. It's all 
funny money at this point. But the, but the fact is, when they go public, and that's when you start bringing in outside funding, uh, they, they can pull money off the table. Well, so they might still be eating pimento cheese sandwiches and riding their bikes to work. Exactly. It, it, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think they're living high on the hog yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think they're living high on the hog yet. Now, now Grammarly in 2022, they only, they only employ 240 people. I mean, it's a, it's a small operation. Mm-hmm. Half the employees are in the Kiev office which uh, is really nice to see, actually. It's still in the Kiev office, even after the, um, even after the war there in uh, Ukraine. Now, the rest are in San Francisco, Vancouver, and New York. And, uh, and so the, a lot of the programmers are in Kiev, actually. Uh, they like being in San Francisco because that's where you know, the, the, you know, in the heart of Silicon Valley, and this is where they meet people that can, uh, potential funders. They have a lot of mentors there, people that have started companies, scaled them. So they have a lot of people that they'll just meet, meet on the streets who can really help them and mentor them. Same thing in Vancouver. And then New York is more of a, more of a finance and marketing center. Now, they are quite uh, upset with, of course, the invasion of Russia and Ukraine. So they announced that all profits that Grammarly has made from uh, Russian users or Bel- or users in Belarus since 2014 uh, are are going to be uh, <clears throat> are going to be donated to Ukraine to help with the relocation and help with the uh, <clears throat> help with the problems in Ukraine maybe maybe help rebuild Ukraine. So these guys, I think. Coming out of Ukraine, I mean, this sort of is encouraging that no matter what country you're in, it seems like IT is a great leveler. You can create great products almost anywhere that'll make a difference in the world. So there you go. Everything you'd want to know about Alexei Shevchenko and Maxim Litkin, who started the first Ukrainian unicorn, Grammarly. Yes, and we'll talk more about unicorns in a minute. And we know they exist because we believe the science. (laughs) Doc will even explain how unicorns come into existence. So pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, as we join Doc for his observations from the faculty lounge next on Tech Talk Radio. It's technology. It's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University. Coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives one student at a time. 
how do you advance your career while still working full-time with an education that fits your schedule? Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University uh, talking technology. And now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Now, once upon a time... Unicorn startups, valued at more a billion dollars or more, were, were a rare breed, but now we're seeing more and more of them. So the question becomes, what's the formula for success in creating a unicorn? Now, Emily Bauer, she interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs who have started unicorns, and she was trying to figure out what are the what are the common elements between all these companies that allowed them to achieve unicorn status. And she came up with six key ingredients that are required. So let's see how these six ingredients match up against uh, Grammarly. Well, what, well, just before you start naming the six ingredients, I'm thinking, do you go into ever, do you ever go into starting any venture though with this idea specifically of becoming a unicorn or you just want to get a company going, right? Well, I think uh, you have to, from the very beginning, decide you're going to develop systems that will scale. Uh-huh. So okay. you have to build scalability into the basic DNA of the company because it, it determines the kind of people you hire, the kind of software infrastructure you set up, software and hardware infrastructure. So I do think you have to think big from the very beginning. I don't know that that your goal is always necessarily be a unicorn, but but you have to think scalability from the very beginning. Okay, so what are those six key ingredients, Doc? Okay, so there, you have to basically have an idea that that that's that, that that's going to get legs. So there's no recipe for success, but but your 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 core idea has got to at least have some of these basic ingredients. It, you've got to be a simple solution to an existing problem, like you know, like plagiarism or like picking the best word or writing the best sentence. You need a strong marketable value position. You need to have clear vision for where the company's going. You've got to have distinct positioning, even if you're not first to market. You've got to have a pipeline of new leads, including potential beta testers, and see, they had all these students from the universities. So they went back to their pool of, of potential users, and those students became the beta testers right out of the bat of their new product. And you got to have an easy-to-use user interface uh, that allows users to quickly adopt your product and get it. And the way they integrated it into, say, Microsoft Office, you didn't have to do anything. I mean, once you installed the application on your laptop or on your iPad, all the tools you needed just showed up. It was really 
very, very intuitive. Now, secondly, when you, you know, by the time you get to be a unicorn, you're going to have to get funding along the way somewhere. Now, investors don't fund ideas. They fund promising products and teams. So by the time, uh, by the time uh, Alexi and Maxim went to get funding, they already had a product. They already were making money. They already had a development team in Kiev. They had a marketing team in Toronto. They had another team in San Francisco. They, and what the uh, VCs did, they looked at a product that had already been launched and they looked at a team that could help it scale. That allowed them once the investors knew they had the right people, the right skills, the right tools, and the right data to make it happen, they could get money. And they had those things in spades. That's why they got such high valuation and didn't have to get much, give up much equity in order to get funding. And that doesn't happen too often in the world of venture capital, does it? That, you, that you're so highly developed and you're proving already that you're making money. That's a great idea. All you're asking the VC to do is to help you get bigger faster. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's very rare that that happens. Yeah. Very, very rare. And, and that, this happened in their case because they sold another company, My Dropbox, and they used that money to fund their own startup. Now, the timeline is less important than your ability to iterate, okay? Because your first go at it may not work. So they started out just as kind of a spell checker. You know, I mean, their first, when they started launching uh, Grammarly to the universities, it started out as a spell checker. Well, they, they had to do more than that. Then it had to suggest words. Then it had to look at grammar. So they just started adding stuff and iterating on their product quickly. They did it very quickly based on feedback. And so, um, you know, successful, successful unicorns are able to iterate, iterate, iterate. So it's not really the timeline you focus on, but the speed to iteration. Now, you also have to have a true product market fit. They call that PMF that captures the users as well as the casual customers. Now, the early PMF, the early product market fit, establishes the proof of concept. So what they did, they got an initial product market fit with the students, a PMF, and they sort of expanded their capability in the student base, making their PMF a better and better fit. Then they had to appeal to a broader market base, so then they added features that it would, would appeal to just general writers who already knew how to write you know, how to, how to impose a style or a formality. And so how to add, and so they added AI to make it better. So they created a growth focused product market fit. And you can see how they went through these stages and they did that very deliberately when they started expanding to a different group of people. They got feedback from that group to make their product market fit even better. Now, the strongest startups are built to maximize growth, not profit. So you got to get the right balance between cash flow and, 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 uh, and what you do to reinvest in your business. So initially, they were, they were focused on building the business without getting venture capital involved. When they wanted to maximize growth, 
They brought in the VCs to bring in the money, and they focused on growing the business and scaling it. It wasn't so much like, okay, how much profit are we going to get? Are we going to be more profitable with this investment? No. They needed to grow it to 30 million users, 50 million users, because if they figured if they could dominate the market of writing assistance, ultimately it would be a huge, huge win for the investors. And the final thing is, this is really important, you've got to dream big. Now, while growth itself is kind of optional, preparing for it is not. That, wait, People repeat say, that. That's a, right. That's a, big, that's, that's a big sentence right there. Growth is optional, but preparing for it is not. You should always be ready to grow. That's right. So that, what that means is you've got to have software inf infrastructure that's scalable. You have to, you have to hire people that understand growth. So even though you may not be growing in the beginning, you have to have that clearly in mind as you're building the company infrastructure or you're not or you're you're just going to you're going to flame out because you're 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 not going to have sufficient staff to scale it. Your infrastructure is not going to be sufficient to scale. So you sort of look at the end point as you're building the beginning point of your system. So you've got to dream big from the very beginning in order to do it. So they, she found these six elements were common across all the unicorn entrepreneurs that she invested, that they, that they had the, the key foundational ingredients, that they had a core idea that, that, that made sense. They were able to assemble the right people, the right skills, the right tools, the right data to make the data happen. They focused on the ability to iterate quickly based on feedback. They had a true product market fit, both at the early stage as well as in the growth stage. They focused on maximizing growth with investor money, not profit. And from the very beginning, they would dream big. So they hit all of the check marks there, and that's why Grammarly was so successful. Now, Doc, they also use artificial intelligence. What, what specifically, like, where does it really come into play in all of what they're doing at this point? Yeah, as they started right, as they started developing Grammarly for skilled writers, what they would do, they would they they would use AI and this uh, to analyze the paragraph that the writer had just written. And using AI, they would suggest better wording on the sentences or better selection of vocabulary. So they were making very sig significant suggestions to skilled writers to make their writing better. And that required artificial intelligence. Now, there are some companies that uh, do more than just uh, rely on artificial intelligence. Some, sometimes things are actually invented nowadays by artificial intelligence, and, and that raises some copyright issues. What, how, how's that working oh, yeah, out? That, we're, is, we're, that is very true. Yeah. So, if we, if it, so here's the problem. There, it, artificial intelligence now is basically uh, so powerful that it can invent new ideas and new concepts right out of the bat. For instance, um, they, uh, and so intellectual property becomes the issue. Uh, do you give the patent to the artificial intelligence program or do you give the patent to the person that developed the artificial intelligence program? And we, our laws are really not refined to do that. So, for instance, there's a machine out there called Dabas. 
Devices for Autonomous Bootstrapping of Uniform Sentience, was created by Dr. Stephen Thaler, and he's president and CEO of an AI firm called Imagination Engines. Now, Dobbus created two products using artificial intelligence. They created a food container with a fractal surface that helped with insulation and also helped with stacking. And they also created a flashing light that was very effective for attracting, attracting attention in emergencies. And they used uh, both artificial intelligence tools to develop both of these. So what Dr. Thaler did, this was, he was in Australia, he applied for two Australian patents and he named Dobbus as the inventor. And this went to the courts in Australia. Initially, uh, the courts allowed this assignment of the patent to Dobbus. Then it was appealed by the patent office, and that was rejected. And now they said, no, they cannot give it to Dobbus. They cannot assign this to Dobbus. It was really important. I mean, there's another, uh, another invention. There was a, a drug called Halicin. And in 2009, they used... Uh, they used uh, uh, artificial intelligence to decide that Hallison was actually a great antibiotic. Hallison had initially been in, invented to treat diabetes, but when they used the AI database, they said, well, based on our analysis, uh, Daba said that uh, this could be also a, an excellent antibiotic uh, to work against the bacteria that was resistant to antibiotic, and in fact, it worked. So now what they're saying is they've got to revise IP legislation in order to do this thing and, and imply what they call sui generalis, which means constituting a class alone, unique in particular, and they're going to have to modify patent law to allow that to happen. It's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and get back to us as soon as they, you can. Uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And then go to the Stratford University website, check out our programs in nursing, health science, the software engineering, cybersecurity, software engineering, uh, uh, business accounting, culinary arts and hospitality. And when you go to Stratford and ask about those programs, tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.